Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. <sighs> Off and running on a Tuesday, and uh, man, I'm, I'm telling you, I just feel so much better getting past whatever this cold was that was just kicking my tail for the last half of last week. I really am grateful. I, I'm very thankful that uh, we were able to uh, to overcome it, but holy cow. Whew. I'm watching my boy go through it right now, and uh, this is not as much fun as it sounds like, so don't don't be fooled. This is, uh, it may seem like a cool thing to do, you know, it'll be slamming back the Alka-Seltzer Plus and throat lozenges and keeping a box of tissue nearby at all times, but it's really not that much fun. And frankly, I'll, I'll be the one who takes a risk of pointing that out. It kind of sucks. Anyway, welcome to the show. Got some interesting stuff to talk about this hour. We spent last hour spending a little bit of time talking about climate crisis. We're going to talk about something a little bit different, though, this time around. Um, I want to talk about how the drone attacks in Saudi Arabia have changed the nature of global warfare. Now, you may feel free to disagree, but this was an interesting uh, take. This is from Patrick Cockburn, published in The Independent out of the U.K., and whatever you may think of Iran, whatever you may think of the U.S. and its presence in the Middle East or whatever, you know, however you see the, the whole global dynamic of geopolitics and where the power is and how it's shifting around. There are some real strong points to consider here. It's funny. I saw a headline pop up on a discussion board yesterday. Iran launches two missiles at the U.S. embassy in Iraq. And I'm like, really? I got to see this story. And I look in there and. No, there's a story about a couple of uh, rockets were apparently launched in the direction or near the U.S. embassy in Iraq. There was nothing there tying it, though, to uh, to Iran. Nothing at all. But I guess this is the this is the narrative we're supposed to buy into. And, uh, and that that narrative, if I understand it correctly, can pretty much be summed up as, hey, Iran is throwing their weight around over there. Where? Yeah, in their part of the world. Oh, okay. And we can't allow that to happen. Now, personally, I don't buy into that because I don't think that everything the U.S. does, foreign policy-wise, especially militarily over there, is necessarily good or even righteous. Let me give you an example of um, why I'm a bit of a skeptic. It was just a few days ago. Forty people were killed in a drone strike in Afghanistan. I believe this was at a wedding. 40 people, including women and children. But we're not supposed to talk about that. We're not supposed to notice that. This is, uh, this is uh, well, it's, it's just not the one thing that we're supposed to be paying any attention to. But you know what's really interesting? What does our press talk about? Do they talk about this drone strike and scores of people being killed? I can assume only some of these people may have actually been on the hit list or, you know, have, have somehow earned 
the possibility of of being, you know, an enemy of the United States. Most of them were innocent. But what is our press obsessed with? Well, you know, Iran and the Saudi oil and we need to we need to send American troops over there. Why do we want to do that? To make Saudi Arabia great again. Okay. Now, this is the same Saudi Arabia that 15 of the hijackers on 9-11 back in 2001. uh, That's Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The same Saudi Arabia that cut the heads off 130 some odd people last year for various crimes. Yeah, that's the one. That's they're 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 the good people. Okie doke. Well, <laughs> hey, why don't we just give them some tactical nukes and tell them you guys defend yourselves? Oh, what? Not comfortable with that? Anyway, it, the, the point being, our press this is uh, this is outside of the boundaries of acceptable or um, allowable opinion. But these drone attacks that took place which I don't believe have been proven, at least uh, to anybody outside of the, the media, <laughs> based on some press release from the, the State Department. We're supposed to believe this is all Iran's fault. This is, what, uh, this is what Patrick Cockburn says. He says the devastating attack on Saudi oil facilities by drones and missiles not only transforms the balance of military power in the Middle East, but it actually marks a change in the nature of warfare globally. So for those who may not realize it, on the morning of 14 September, 18 drones and seven cruise missiles, all cheap and unsophisticated compared to modern military aircraft, disabled half of Saudi Arabia's crude oil production and raised the world price of oil by 20 percent. By the way, I gassed up yesterday and that uh, little spike in oil prices starting to feel it at the pump. Now, Cockburn says this happened despite the Saudis spending $67 billion on their defense budget last year, much of it on vastly expensive aircraft and air defense systems, which notably failed to stop the attack. The U.S. defense budget stands at $750 billion, its intelligence budget at $85 billion, but U.S. forces in the Gulf did not know what was happening until it was all over. Now, excuses advanced for this failure include the drones flying too low to be detected or unfairly coming from a direction different than the one they might have expected. But such explanations sound pathetic when set against the proud boasts of the arms manufacturers and military commanders about the effectiveness of their weapon systems. Now, Patrick Cockburn points out debate is still ongoing about whether it was the Iranians or the Houthis who carried out the attack. The likely answer being a combination of the two, but perhaps with Iran orchestrating the operation and supplying the equipment. But he says over-focus on responsibility diverts attention from a much more important development. You ready for this? That development is that a middle-ranking power like Iran, which, by the way, is under sanctions and with limited resources and expertise, acting alone or through allies has inflicted crippling damage on theoretically much better armed Saudi Arabia, which is supposedly defended by the U.S., the world's greatest military superpower. Now, if the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are particularly hesitant to retaliate against Iran, it's because they know now, contrary to what they might have believed a year ago, that a counterattack will not be a cost-free exercise. In other words, what happened before can happen again. It's not for nothing Iran has been called a drone superpower. 
oil production facilities and the desalination plants providing much of the fresh water in Saudi Arabia are conveniently concentrated targets for drones and small missiles. So Cockburn is saying, in other words, a military playing field will be a lot more level in the future in a conflict between a country with a sophisticated air force and air defense system and one without. The trump card for the U.S., NATO powers, and Israel has long been their overwhelming superiority in air power over any likely enemy. Well, suddenly this calculus has been undermined because almost anybody can be a player on the cheap when it comes to air power. Anthony Cordesman, a military expert at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, succinctly sums up the importance of this change, writing that the strikes on Saudi Arabia provide a clear strategic warning that the U.S. era of air supremacy in the Gulf and the near U.S. monopoly on precision strike capability is rapidly fading. Cordesman also explains that a new generation of drones, cruise missiles, and precision strike ballistic missiles are entering the Iranian inventories and have begun to spread to the Houthis in Yemen and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Similar turning points in military history have occurred when the deployment of an easily produced weapon suddenly checkmates the use of a much more complicated one. Here's a good example of it. (laughs) Excuse me. The attack on 11 November 1940 on five Italian battleships moored at their base at Toronto by 20 slow-moving but sturdy British swordfish biplanes armed with torpedoes and launched from an aircraft carrier. At the end of the day, three of the battleships had been sunk or badly damaged, while just two of the British planes were missing. And Cockburn says the enormity of the victory achieved at such minimal cost ended the era when battleships ruled the sea and replaced them with one in which aircraft carriers with a torpedo bomber combination were supreme. It was a lesson, by the way, noted by the Japanese, which attacked Pearl Harbor in a very similar fashion just a year after Taranto. Now, I've got to take a break here in just a moment, but uh, we're going to come back to this article by Patrick Cockburn about how the Saudi Arabia drone attacks trump U.S.-Iran and global warfare. I don't want to make it sound like I'm cheering for one side or the other, but I got to tell you, there's a part of me that is kind of grateful to see somebody able to work around what uh, what is becoming, I think, a very inflexible and dictatorial hegemony on the part of the U.S. government. But I'm non-interventionist, so that may explain part of my, you know, brain damage. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. So I was just looking through my news feed here again. And so, yeah, there was a drone strike in Afghanistan. It was a joint U.S.-Afghan strike that killed 40 civilians, including a number of children. This was uh, when uh, U.S. and Afghan commandos raided a house and then called in airstrikes. That was Sunday night. But just a few days earlier... I was reminded there was another drone strike, this time killing 32 civilians, including children, who were simply harvesting pine nuts. Actually, they were resting after harvesting pine nuts. Now, 
Now, I know this is a really politically incorrect thing to suggest, or maybe even a really unpatriotic thing to, to suggest in a time where we're supposed to believe that everything that our government does, everything that our military does in, you know, under the orders of those in our government is somehow righteous. We're talking 70 some people killed. Only a fraction of whom might have actually been the intended target. And yet the U.S. remains on one of these kicks where they don't take responsibility for anything. For instance, in the attack Sunday night that uh, killed at least 40 civilians, including a number of children, the U.S. released a statement confirming the airstrike but denying killing civilians. They said, well, the attack targeted al-Qaeda. They suggested that any civilians died from al-Qaeda weapons, not from the U.S. dropping bombs on them. And it was the same kind of, uh, same kind of spin and, and cover you know, following that incident in the Nangahar province where the U.S. attacked and killed scores of civilian farm laborers who were hired for a pine nut harvest. 32 civilians, including children. And yet the U.S. went on to claim, well, everybody was pretending to be harvesting pine nuts, but they were secretly all ISIS people. Now, sometimes, you know, the Pentagon will admit to and apologize for civilian casualties. Other times they deny everything. But either way, the end result here is to to continue on. There is no policy change. The number of civilian deaths continues. And, and this is all I'm asking you to consider. OK, I'm not trying to get you to, to go burn a flag or otherwise hate America. Can we at least agree, though, when people are being killed as a result of U.S. intervention? And I'm talking innocent people being killed as a result of U.S. intervention. How can that not be an incubator for future terrorism or radicalism? How can it not? See, I think empathy is at an all-time low in the world in which we live. And this is one of the places where I see it most clearly. Because most Americans are, well, they shouldn't, they shouldn't support or associate with these terrorist types. According to whom? And I think the really tough thing to do is put yourself in their shoes. You just get a message. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, but I have to inform you that uh, two of your kids have been killed and your wife has been grievously wounded in, a, in an attack. Are you going to ask, well, but did they get the uh, Al-Qaeda suspects? No. You're going to be outraged. Your family is dead. Your family wasn't even Al-Qaeda. They weren't ISIS. Or are you just going to shrug it off and go, oh, they were killed by the U.S.? Well, then, you know, that's all good. It's kind of a privilege, actually. Why, I'm, I'm proud that my family was, was taken to heaven by, by the U.S. military. I don't think that's the case. So when I tell you, I'm kind of happy to see um, this, this article in The Independent by Patrick Cockburn talking about how these drone attacks in Saudi Arabia portend a pretty big shift in the military supremacy, not just of the U.S., but Saudi Arabia, Israel, and others. And you do understand, I'm not... I'm not cheering the idea that, yay, bad actors and malcontents can now go out there and pretty much screw around with whoever they wish. But at the same time, I'm grateful that the big drunken bully at the bar 
U.S. government, I'm looking in your direction. Can't just push people around anymore. Something has shifted, if you are to believe this article by Patrick Cockburn. He says the Saudis showed off the wreckage of the drones and missiles to assemble diplomats and journalists this week in a bid to convince them that the Iranians were behind the air raid. But he says the most significant feature of the broken drone and missile parts was that in full working order, the weapons that had just rocked the world economy would not have cost a lot. By way of contrast, the U.S. made Patriot anti-aircraft missiles, the main air defense of Saudi Arabia that was so useless last Saturday. Those things cost three million bucks a piece. Why is that important? Well, cost and simplicity are important because that means that Iran, the Houthis, Hezbollah and almost any country can produce drones and missiles in numbers large enough to overwhelm any defenses they're likely to meet. He says, compare the cost of the drone, which would be in the tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars, to the $122 million price of a single F-35 fighter. So expensive they can only be purchased in limited numbers. And he says, as they take on board the meaning of what happened at Abkaik and Kurais oil facilities, governments around the world will need to be demanding that their Air Force chiefs explain why they need to spend so much money when cheap but effective alternatives are available. Going by past precedent, the air chiefs and arms manufacturers will fight to their last breath for grossly inflated budgets to purchase weapons of dubious utility in a real war. He says the attack on Saudi Arabia reinforces a trend in warfare in which easily, easily acquired inexpensive weapons come out on top. Now, we've had some experience with this. Consider the track record of the improvised explosive device, or IED, usually made out of easily available fertilizer, detonated by a command wire, and planted in or beside a road. These have been used with devastating effect by the IRA in South Arma, forcing the British Army off the roads and into helicopters. IEDs were used in great numbers and with great effect against U.S.-led coalition forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. Immense resources were deployed by the U.S. military into finding a counter for this deadly device which included spending no less than $40 billion on 27,000 heavily armored vehicles called MRAPs. A subsequent Army study revealed that the number of U.S. servicemen killed and wounded in an attack on an MRAP was exactly the same as in the vehicles which they had replaced. Now, Patrick Cockburn says it's unthinkable that American, British, and Saudi military chiefs will accept that they command expensive, technically, technically advanced forces that are obsolete in practice. This means they are stuck with arms that suck up resources, but are in practical terms out of date. The Japanese, soon after, after they had demonstrated at Pearl Harbor the vulnerability of battleships, commissioned the world's largest battleship, the Yamato, which fired its guns only once and was sunk in 1945 by U.S. torpedo aircraft and bombers operating from aircraft carriers. We live in such an interesting time. And here's the kicker. This is the part that, that just makes me wonder what our future may hold. By sharing this information, I'm sure to some people, this seems like the most unpatriotic, most hateful, anti-American thing you have ever heard come out of my mouth. 
But is that really what you take away from this? Boy, you really hate this country. Because I'd like to think it's clear enough that I, I love this country. I love this country enough to speak up and stick my neck out and take the risk of being seen as a bad guy or a malcontent for calling this kind of behavior out. But the hubris is so strong at the national level. And when you have, you know, the ultimate in military gadgets to back up whatever it is you want to do, it's easy to believe yourself invincible. I'm grateful that there may be some things which are chipping away at that invincibility. If for no other reason, maybe it can hasten a return to proper government, or at least properly limited government. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. So I'm going to continue on in this vein of uh, questioning whether the U.S. is still the uh, beacon of liberty and of, of ultimate force, but only used for good. For, what is it, truth, goodness, and the American way? I can't remember what it was, anyway. Whatever Superman would have upheld. I'm going to shake your faith a little bit. If, if, you are, if you are a person who really leans on the arm of the flesh, if you get, uh, you know, warm fuzzies, goosebumps, or otherwise uh, thoroughly excited when shiny, zooming, loud jets fly over the stadium at the beginning of your sporting event, if the sight of a self-propelled howitzer trundling down a city street and part of a parade, you know, thrills your heart. If you love the emblems of the government's power. I have a few thoughts I want to share with you, courtesy of Fred Reed. About the danger of overestimating military capability. Now, in interest of, you know, establishing Fred's uh, credentials here, not only was he a Marine, but he also covered the military for various publications like the Washington Times and Harper's. He wrote a military column for Universal Press Syndicate. And he says during that couple of decades, he was following the time honored principle of sensible reporters. Ask not what you can do for journalism, but what journalism can do for you. And he said it was a great gig. Writing about the military, that military beat, let him fly in fighter planes and sink in submarines. But he says, if you take the study seriously, as he did, you learn some really interesting things, such as that a war with a real country like Russia, China, or even Iran would be a few a fool's adventure. And he has a few points to back this up, starting with unused militaries deteriorate. Now, Fred Reed points out the U.S. fleet hasn't been in a war since 1945, the Air Forces since 1975, nor the Army in a hard fight since Vietnam. Bombing defenseless peasants, the chief function of the American military, is not war. In extended periods of peace, which include the bombing of peasants, a military tends to assume that no major war will come during the careers of those now in uniform. So commanders consequently do what makes their lives easy what they must do to get through the day and have reasonable fitness reports. 
And that does not include pointing out inadequacies of training or, or equipment. Nor does it include recommending large expenditures to remedy deficiencies. Nor does it include recommending very expensive mobilization exercises that would divert money from new weapons. So an armored command has enough replacement tracks for training, but not enough for tanks in hard use in extended combat. When the crunch comes, it turns out that getting more track requires a new contract with the manufacturer who has shut down the production line. By the way, the same thing is true for air filters. They're not being much sand at Fort Campbell, but a lot in Iraq. So things as mundane as MRATs and boots are not there in real war quantities. GAU-8 ammo, like for the A-10 Warthog, is in short supply because theory says the F-35 will do tank busting. The Navy runs out of T-LAMs early on and discovers that manufacturing cruise missiles takes time. Lots of it. And, of course, some things simply don't work as expected. Military history buffs will remember the Mark 14 torpedo, the Mark 6 exploder of World War II, and the travails of Tenosa. Come the war, things turn into a goat rope. Fubar. Snafu. Then there's the matter of conscription. He says the U.S. can't fight a large land war, as, for example, against Russia, China, or Iran. Such a war would require conscription, and the public would not stand for it. America no longer enjoys the sort of patriotic unity that it did at the beginning of the war against Vietnam. That means it's not going to accept heavy casualties. People are far more willing to disobey the federal government. He says, note that many states have legalized marijuana in defiance of federal law. The many jurisdictions across the country simply refuse to assist federal immigration enforcement. Any attempt to send snowflakes and other delegates to fight would result in widespread civil disobedience. Then he gets to the Navy. And he points out the existing fleet has never been under fire and does not think it ever would be. He says most of its ships are thin-skinned, unarmored. One hit by an anti-ship missile would remove them from the war. And this is as true of the Tico-class Aegis ships as of the newer Arleigh Burks. Now he says an aircraft carrier is a bladder of jet fuel wrapped around high explosives. And the implications are considerable. A plunging, hypersonic, terminally guided ballistic missile piercing the flight deck and exploding in the hangar deck would require a year in the repair yards. The Russians and Chinese are developing or have developed missiles specifically to take out carriers. And he says, note that the range of some of these missiles is much greater than the combat radius of the carrier's aviation. Oops. By the way, the USS Stark he has a picture of it back in uh, 1985 after it was hit by a pair of French, or 1987 rather, after being hit by a, fr- a pair of French Exocet missiles fired by an Iraqi Mirage. And he has another picture of the USS Forrestal in 1967. After a 5-inch Zuni land attack missile, a pipsqueak rocket accidentally launched on deck. It hit another fighter. The resulting fire cooked off large bombs, 134 dead, long stay in the repair yards. But the key point here is that the Navy is assuming that it cannot be hit. Then you have the milk toast factor. He says, through Vietnam, America's wars were fought by tough kids, often from rural backgrounds, involving familiarity with guns and hard physical work. 
He says, I know as I grew up and went to Marine boot with them. Discipline, if not quite brutal, came close. Physical demands were high. In AIT, Advanced Infantry Training at Camp Lejeune, it was S Company on the road at 3.30 a.m., followed by hard running and weapons training until midnight. Yes, he says oldsters like to remember how it was, but he says that was how it was. Today, America has a military corrupted by social justice politics. Recruits are no longer country boys who could chop cordwood. Obesity is common. The Pentagon has lowered physical standards, hidden racial problems, softened training. The officers are afraid of the large numbers of military women who are now in combat positions. One complaint about sexism, there goes the career. And then you have officer rot. In times of extended peace, the officer corps decays. And Fred Reed says all second tour officers are politicians especially above the level of lieutenant colonel. You don't get promoted by suggesting that the senior ranks are lying for political reasons, as by insisting that the Afghan war is being won. He says peacetime encourages careerists to advance to, to advance by not making waves. Such patterns of PowerPoint invariably have to be weeded out at a high cost in lives in a big war. And he says today's military is not going to fare well in anything resembling equal combat against Afghans, Russians, or Iranians. Now think about it. The U.S. military hasn't been able to defeat Afghan villagers in 18 years. With an immense advantage in air power, gunships, armor, artillery, medical care, and PXs. What do you think would happen if they had to fight the Taliban on equal terms? Sandals, rifles, RPGs, and not much else. He says the future of the enemy is the present. The military isn't ready for a real war now because its focus is always on things down the road. For example, the Navy cannot now defeat hypersonic anti-ship missiles, but will be able to, it thinks, someday, maybe, world without end, with near-magical lasers still in development. These will funnel lots of money to Raytheon or to Lockheed Martin or somebody, whether they work or not, which isn't important since nobody believes there will be a serious war. Apparently, this is common thinking. America's in the process of acquiring B-21 intercontinental nuclear bombers for a frightening price. They will be useless except in a nuclear war, when they would still be useless because ICBMs would already have turned targets into glowing rubble when the B-21s got there. So why build them? He says because Northrop Grumman has so much money that its lobbyists use snow shovels to fill congressional pockets. He says, in my days of covering the Pentagon, whenever a new weapon was bought, the AH-64 Apache, for example, the prime contractor would hand out a list of subcontractors in many states whose congressmen would support the weapon to get the jobs. In other words, it's all about the money. Sometimes Congress forces the military to buy weapons it explicitly says it doesn't want, like more M1 tanks from the factory in Lima, Ohio. Jobs. In short, many weapons are bought for economic reasons, but not for use in war. He says, in my day, he says, I saw many not-for-use weapons. The B-1, the B-2, DVAD, D-I-V-A-D, rather, the Bradley Fighting Vehicle, the M-16, the V-22, the Law. Nothing has changed. We'll come back to Fred Reed's comments here in just a moment. If you want to uh, weigh in, feel free. 801-331-8113. This is Loving Liberty. 
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Some pretty tough truths here, right? I'm sharing with you an article by Fred Reed, who was a Marine in Vietnam and then a writer who wrote about military things for many, many years. I understand the guy is very curmudgeonly. It's what I love about him, actually, is uh, he, he just doesn't have the patience to sit there and try to dress everything up and euphemisms or sugarcoating or anything. He just tells it very straight. And I think more often than not, he's he's right on, even though he's he's calling into question some of the most sacred cows, at least for most Americans, that, that we're ever likely to encounter. One of which is, hey, anytime our people in uniform are in harm's way, our duty is to shut up and wave the flag and cheer them on. Fred is like, no, I'd rather speak the truth. And it's probably not out of, I'm guessing it's not out of some sort of hatred towards people in uniform. I think he has a great camaraderie with them and a very deep understanding of what is at stake there. But I also get the impression that Fred Reed, he's tired of repeating the platitudes or the lies that others will tell to to maintain the illusion that the U.S. is the most righteous and powerful nation on the face of the earth, and thus it shall ever be so. That's a tough thing to consider. But I'll share with you here in a few minutes why I think that's that's probably a healthier way of looking at things, you know, to, to, to realize that, that that time is past and we have to rely on something more than just brute force if we want to be a great nation. I think this is this is what we're going to have to consider. One of the things he points out is there's a blank ignorance factor. And he says the landscape outside of the five sided wind tunnel, you and I would call that the Pentagon, is at least as bleak as that within. He says a friend very much in a position to know estimates that 90 percent of the Senate doesn't know where Burma is. Think Hormuz, Malacca, South China Sea. The likelihood that Trump knows what countries are literal, L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L, to the Caspian is zero. But he says, when I covered the military, very few in Congress and nobody in the major media knew anything at all about weaponry and its uses. Surface duct, deep sound channel, convergence zones, pseudo-random beam steering, APF-SDS, staring receivers, chirp coding. These are the first grade small talk of people who pay attention they do not include minor lawyers become congressmen from East, East Jesus, Nebraska, but they vote on military policy. And then you have the arrival of the maintenance hog. Here, Fred Reed points out being in a real war is hard on equipment. There's battle damage. There's heavy wear and tear. It doesn't matter in the wars today's. This doesn't matter in the wars today's military fights. He says, America cannot really lose. It can only be worn down and leave. So if the U.S. loses in Afghanistan or Syria, it won't matter to Americans and few will even notice. That's because America always fights from well-protected bases and airfields. So it can afford to use weapons that require a lot of maintenance, including high-tech work. In a real war, no. Back in World War II, he says, a a fighter plane was just a malformed truck. Engine, windshield, tires, motor, stamped metal. If one came back full of holes, repair crews with reasonable training could repair them fast on the hangar deck. 
Now, it wasn't quite pop rivets and rivets and bondo, but close. After the big war, American aircraft almost always flew from relatively safe bases. So, for example, in Vietnam, the carriers were never in danger. After Vietnam, the aerial forces seldom even suffered battle damage. Since the U.S. was always attacking utterly inferior enemies, sortie rates and repair time ceased to matter. And the military came to expect such luxury. But he says, now we have the F-35, the latest do-everything fighter of grotesque cost. It seems to be a real dog, poorly designed and suffering from endless problems. By accounts in the technical press, it's a hangar queen with a very low sortie rate, poor readiness, and requiring complex electronic maintenance, often at remote echelons. But that's not how you fight a real war. Then there's the matter of how wars turn out, which Fred says typically is not as planned. He says, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Look at history. The American Civil War was supposed to last a day at first Manassas, wrong by four years and 650,000 dead. Napoleon thought his attack on Russia would end with the French in Moscow, not the Russians in Paris, which is what happened. World War II was supposed to last weeks and be a war of movement, wrong by four bloody years of trench warfare. I'm sorry, World War I was supposed to be weeks long and a war of movement, not four bloody years of trench warfare. The Japanese army did not expect to end World War II with GIs buying their daughters drinks in Tokyo, nor the Germans that it would end with the Russian infantry in Berlin. The Americans did not think they would lose in Vietnam, nor the Russians that they would lose in Afghanistan, and so forth. But he says this happens partly because militaries are overconfident as a job requirement. You can't tell the Marines that they're the best mediocre light infantry or the Navy that it's essentially a target set. Instead, the American armed forces are always said to be the best equipped, best trained, bravest, most formidable military the world has ever seen. Except they aren't. So he says, assume that uh, John Bolton gets his war against Iran. Advisors tell him it will be short and sweet. Surgical. A cakewalk. And then he asks, have we heard this before? The Navy says it can keep the Hormuz straight open. Grr, woof. But somehow Iran doesn't follow the script. Doesn't surrender. The Navy, to its surprise, cannot find these deeply dug in and truck borne anti-ship missiles that keep hitting tankers. They keep burning. Soon nobody will insure them. They stop coming. Three weeks into the war, the world is screaming for oil. There's no end in sight. Trump can't admit that he's blundered. Bolton wants to nuke Tehran. Or maybe Washington pushes too hard in the South China Sea. An accidental collision turns into a shooting incident, and the Pompeo-Boltonian Bannonites order the fleet to teach those chinks a lesson. Well, unfortunately, the Chinese anti-ship missiles turn out to be rather better than expected. A carrier is disabled and three destroyers rendered scrap. Now what? Huge and uninformed egos in Washington could not accept defeat. For one thing, it would end American credibility as a hegemon, and everybody in his herd of goats would want to buy Chinese anti-ship missiles. So his point here is, vanity plays larger role a larger role in world affairs than the textbooks say. <laughs> Excuse me. 
Washington stupidly but inevitably would double down and start an all-out war with China. And at that point, things would become unpredictable. And that leads us to his final point, which is nuclear war. He says, men of incalculable stupidity and likely sexual inadequacy talk about nuclear war as winnable. Dream on. He says, reflect. American cities cannot feed themselves. Three days without food shipments and New Yorkers would clear the supermarket shelves. A week and they would kill for cans of tuna fish. Two weeks and they would be eating each other. A very few nuclear bombs on transportation hubs would prevent distribution of food for months. Even fewer cobalt bombs designed to produce a maximum of lingering radiation would make the farm belt lethally radioactive for a decade. Defense intellectuals, usually stupid enough that they ought to live in trees, chatter about escalation dominance and intimidation factor and airtight missile defense. But he says they're nuts. What they really need is a codpiece and a subscription to Pornhub Premium. And he says this is why it's a really, really bad idea to have a psychopathic cockatoo, two loon Christians, and a pathologically aggressive mama's boy in a position to start a war. Hmm. That's harsh. (laughs) It's possibly one of the harshest ones I've read from Fred. And he's not one to mince words. But it's another point of view worth considering. I'm not going to tell you, yeah, he's got it all. This is this is exactly the way it is. You can you can make this gospel. But I think Fred Reed has an alternate point of view that's worth considering. And I think this coupled with Patrick Cockburn's article about the the drone attacks on Saudi oil facilities shows that something has shifted. While we were all, you know, gearing up and, uh, you know, cheering for the latest Zoom wows that were flying by. Technology has has played into the hands and helped smaller, weaker nations. And it may not be a small, weak nation like Iran or weaker nation like Iran on its own that will stand up and tell the U.S. no. Get your foot off of our necks. It may be a coalition of them. But it definitely appears that uh, there have been some, uh, shall we say, some holes found in our armor. Credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.